Good morning. I'm Tommy Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Centerpoint. And this morning, our senior pastor, John Schmidt, and a couple of other staff members of ours are out in uh, Washington State at a um, pastor's conference. And John's going to be back next week, but I get the opportunity this morning to start us off in a new series. And it's called One Week That Changed the World. And we'll be going through this series. We'll be taking at the uh, last week of Jesus' life and all the events that led up to his death on the cross and his resurrection on Sunday. And it's going to be an amazing series. I promise you, you don't want to miss any of the messages in this series. Uh, this morning, before we get started with the first um, message in that series, I want to ask you a question. How many of you in here want to learn how to be a better disciple or a better follower of Jesus Christ? Okay? That's why many of us come to churches, that we want to know what it's like or how can we be better followers of Jesus. And this morning, in today's message, there are going to be some points or some things that we learn in the message that I think are going to help us learn how to be better followers, better disciples of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, inside your bulletin, you're going to find an insert with an outline on it entitled, The Sunday Before Easter. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. And if you need pens to fill in the blanks, if you just raise your hands, our ushers would love to come by and get you a pen. The Sunday before Easter is often referred to as Palm Sunday, or if you're reading your Bible, you'll see a title that says the triumphal entry. And the reason it's labeled that is because many people believe that Jesus rides into Jerusalem the week before Easter to set up his kingdom and declare himself as a king. And that is partially true. He was coming to declare himself as king, but it wasn't a king that they were expected. It was something more. It was something better. And this morning, we're going to take a look at what his intentions were when he rides into Jerusalem. Before we look at that, would you have a word of prayer with me? Father, we want to come before you this morning, and Lord, we want to thank you for Jesus. Lord, I thank you for sending him uh, to this earth uh, to come and to set up a kingdom, a kingdom that's different than what we've ever seen before, and he's a different kind of king than we've ever seen before. Father, I pray that as we go through this outline this morning, Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to be better followers of you, how to be your disciples. And uh, Father, I pray that you would speak uh, through me today, Lord God, you'd move me out of the way and that your word would come alive and change us and challenge us. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, point one on your outline states that the Sunday before Easter, Jesus demonstrates he was a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. I want to jump ahead just a little bit into our story of Easter to the point where Jesus has already been betrayed. He is before Pilate and he's on trial. And Pilate calls Jesus and he summons him and he asks him a question. This is the question he asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus answers Pilate and said, yes, I'm a king and I have a kingdom but it's not of this world. It's not like any kingdom you've ever seen. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a military kingdom. It's not a kingdom about conquering vast amounts of land. It's a kingdom about conquering the hearts and the minds of men and women who willingly submit their lives to the rule and reign of God in their life. That's the kingdom that I'm coming to set up. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this Sunday before Easter... He begins to demonstrate what kind of king he's going to be, what his kingdom is going to be like, and what it means to be a follower of Christ in his kingdom. And it's very interesting. Point A on your outline states 
Jesus sent his disciples to get a donkey colt for him to ride upon. Now this story of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry, is recorded in all four Gospels. This morning I'm going to be taking the majority of my text from the Luke's account of this. And we're going to start in, in chapter 19 on verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached, approached Bethphage and Bethany at this hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Now, in this very beginning of the story, we're going to find two different examples of what it means to be a follower of Christ or a disciple of Jesus. Um, which in this message, you'll hear me sometimes refers to us as followers, sometimes as disciples. The words are synonymous. It means to say, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus. But in this passage, we're going to find two different examples of what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus. First off, Jesus sends two of his disciples up the road and says, as you go, you're going to see a donkey that's tied up. And uh, matter of fact, I want you to go get that donkey. I want you to untie it, and I want you to bring it to me. Basically, he tells them, um, you know, I want you to go, and if someone asks you, like the owner asks you what you're doing with the donkey, just tell the owner, um, you know, the master has need of it. I'm not stealing it. The master has need of it. I mean, imagine if I told you, hey, I want you to go a couple blocks up the road, and there's a Volkswagen bug, a blue one over there, and it's got the keys underneath the seat. And matter of fact, I want you to go get that Volkswagen bug for me. And by the way, if anyone asks you, especially if the owner asks you, you know, why are you taking my car? You know, just tell them, you know, Tommy needs it. I mean, think about that. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. I want you to go do something that doesn't make any, any sense. Listen, these disciples had to trust that Jesus knew what he was saying when he told them to go. He had to trust them for the outcome of what was actually going to take place. And that's the life application for us, is that we need to go when God tells us to go and trust him to provide the resources. It's what followers of Christ do. They surrender their life so much to the rule and reign of God in their life that they're willing to go when Jesus says go, even when it doesn't look like the resources are in place to actually accomplish what he's called us to accomplish. When uh, Jesus was teaching uh, throughout the three years about the kingdom of God, and he was teaching his disciples to preach the same message, he told 72 of his disciples, I want you to go into all the villages ahead of me. I want you to go in groups of two, and I want you to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. And oh, by the way, I want you not to take anything as you go. Because I want you to trust me that I will provide for you along the way. Listen to the story in Luke 10. Jesus said, now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you or a traveler's bag or any extra pair of sandals. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. Many times when God tells us to do something, he asks us to go whether it's to go minister the gospel, whether it's to go to ask someone for forgiveness, whether it's to go and uh, start a ministry, whatever it is, many times when he tells us to go, all the resources aren't in place before we go. 
many times he tells us to go and we take a look at our resources and we go, well, we can't go yet because not everything's in place. Listen, if everything was in place, we wouldn't have learn how to trust God in every step of the way. God wants us to trust him and to surrender our minds and our wills and our emotions and even the way that we think things ought to be done to the lordship of him. That's what he wants us to do. Now, Philippians 4.19 goes on to tell us why we can do this. Because God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I believe that there are many people in this room today that God is calling you to do something. And you know God is calling you to do it. But you've taken a look at your resources, your strength, your knowledge, your wisdom, your finances, and you can't figure it out, so you don't go. You just stop. Many times that's happened to me. I feel like God is putting something on my heart to go do, and and I'll argue with God. But God, I'm not ready yet. I don't have all my resources. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And God is asking me many times, will you just trust me and begin to take the first step? And watch me provide for you every step of the way. Many times God tells us to go forgive someone and we tell God, I don't have the courage. Or God tells us to go serve someone and we say, God, I don't have the time. God, I want you to go share your faith. God tells you, you want you to go share your faith with someone. You say, well, I don't know enough. We've got to trust God that God knows what he's doing when he tells us to go. Wherever God guides, you can always guarantee that he'll provide. Always. And that's one of the things that disciples do is they follow God and they trust him. Now, there's another example in the story of what it looks like to be a disciple of God as well. And that's the owner of the donkey. Imagine, here comes these people up to you and they say, hey, we want your donkey. Um, we're, we're going to take your donkey away from, from you. And we're going to go, get, well, why are you doing that? Well, because the master has need of it. Now, this wasn't some Jedi master trick that the disciples were playing on the owner of the donkey. Like he walked up to the owner of the donkey and said, hey, we need your donkey. Yes, we need your donkey. And they just let him go. More than likely, the owner of the donkey was a disciple of Jesus. That Jesus had probably done something amazing in this guy's life. He might have been a, the guy that Jesus had healed from blindness. Or the centurion who had, he had raised his son up to life. And they, you can imagine them telling Jesus, you've done so much in my life that whatever I have, you ha- that you ever need of, you ever have need of it, you can have it. You need my donkey, you can have it. You need three of my donkeys, you can have it. You need this place to stay, you can stay in my house. God was very generous with what he had. And the life application for us is that we need to be generous with our resources when God needs them. When I was 14 years old, my dad helped me get my first paying job. It was mowing yards for a real estate agency with house, people that had moved away and needed their yards mowed. And I remember the first house that I pull up to mow. We get out of the car and I get my little red lawnmower and I crank it up. And as I cranked it up, I take the first little bit and I go about two feet and it just starts choking on me because the yard had not been mowed in three months. And it was all the way up to my knees. And uh, I'll never forget, I was thinking, this is going to be a very long job. And I just continued just, you know how you do the lawnmower, you lift it up and chop it a little bit and a little bit further. It took me two days to mow that yard. I remember at the end of the, of the second day, I was finally done and they had paid me $100 to uh, mow that yard. And I called my dad and said, Dad, I'm finished. Will you come pick me up? And he came and picked me up. We put the lawnmower in the back of the truck. And we're driving back home. And I'm tired and I'm sweating. And I'm hot. 
but I'm happy because I have finally made me some money. And we're on our way back home, and, um, you know, my dad looks at me and says, son, I really want to encourage you to take $10, 10% of what you made and, and put in the offering on Sunday morning and give $10 to God. And I remember I had worked so hard, and I was like, but I've made my money. And I remember asking my dad this question. Dad, why does God own 10% of my money? Why does God own 10% of our money? And my dad pulled our little truck over on the side of the road. And he saw a teachable moment. And he looked at me and he said, son, I want to explain something to you. God doesn't own 10% of our money. God owns 100% of our money. See, we're Christians and we've surrendered our lives to him. We're disciples and followers of Jesus. And we believe that everything that we have comes from God. Therefore, everything we have belongs back to him. And it was a lesson that I will never forget. King David understood this principle. King David had a desire to use his wealth and his resources to build God a house. And God wouldn't let him. At the end of David's life, God tells him, I want your son to build a house for me. So you know what David does? David takes all of his resources, all of his wealth that he's accumulated, and he gives it to Solomon. He says, build God a house. Not only did he do that, he he encouraged all the children of Israel to do the same. And so people begin to give to the work of building God a temple. And then in the midst of that, David prays this prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you. And we give you only what you first gave us. To be a disciple of Jesus is to understand that everything that we have belongs to him. Not only our money and our possessions and our careers, but our time and our relationships, our attitudes. Everything that we have belongs to God. And we willingly, when you willingly submit your lives to Jesus Christ and to the authority and the rule of reign of God in your life, the kingdom of God expands upon the earth. That's how his kingdom expands. Every time we willingly allow him to have authority in our life and to own us and to live through us, his kingdom expands. Now, point B on your outline states that Jesus rode a donkey coat not a mighty war horse into Jerusalem. Mark records this when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. And Jesus was in the center of the procession. And here's a note. This took place to fulfill prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is, a, he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And this was to fulfill prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. See, this has all been prophesied years before. 
that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and that he would become their king. The problem was that they thought that he had come to become a political king, a military king that was going to overthrow the rule of the Roman Empire for, for, for Israel. But that's not what he did. It was so much bigger than what they could even imagine. He comes riding into Jerusalem not to, not to conquer, not to, to destroy people's lives, but to lay down his life so that people could be free from the sin in their heart and be restored to a relationship with God. In reality, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to lay down his life for others. And the life application for us is that Jesus wants us to be servant leaders like him. Jesus wants us to be servant leaders like him. We'll flip your page as we read Mark. Kind of Mark goes on to say, this is what Jesus says. He says, you know that the rulers in this world lord over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? It means that you think of other people's needs above your own. It means that you're servant leaders. Imagine what that would look like if we put that into practice in our marriages. If we put that to practice at school or in work or in our connect groups, or in our communities. That if we really found ways to put other people's needs above our own. See, disciples or followers of Jesus follow Jesus' example. That's our heart's desire. Now there's a lady in our church that kind of has grabbed hold of this concept and has really understood what it means to be a disciple of God that they hear what God is calling them to do and they go without all the resources being in place and they see other people give into those resources, into what God is doing, all because they were thinking of other people first. I want you to hear what Katrina Myers did this December when she looked, found and looked at other people's needs of her own. You watch. Millbrook Middle School. I teach fifth grade reading and I go to Center Point. Um, I had a little girl in my class this year that just, you could tell, she just didn't have what she needed and their family probably needed some help. And so I talked my husband into going by her house and we went to visit and found out that they definitely needed some assistance. So we thought, you know, maybe we can get them a washer and dryer. When we went to deliver the washer and dryer, we found out that where they were living was kind of, um, circumstances I didn't know children had to live in. The, they turn the water on at the road because it leaks so badly in the trailer. There's holes in front of the bathtub. Um, 
The windows and doors don't seal, it's cold, the, the bugs are everywhere. I mean, they have nothing. And so the Lord just put it on our hearts to find them a new home. And so three weeks ago today, um, we left their house and said, all right, God, show us what to do. Last week, last Monday, I went to school and we had been collecting so many donations, but we, we counted our money and we were $350 short of what we needed to pay for the trailer. And I just trusted the Lord. He's been showing me just to, just to be still. And so I went to school that morning and I was like, all right, Lord, I know you're going to do something big today. And I was teaching my class and one of our administrators came in and she's like, how's it going? What do you need? I need $350. And she said, well, I can write you a check for part of that. Why don't you send out an email and ask our staff for the rest? And I was like, all right. And my students were being spectacular. So I sat at my computer for a second. I was like, Lord, is that what you would have me to do? Do you want me to ask for this money? And as I am sitting there praying, God, what do I do? Another person comes in my room and hands me an envelope that says family. And I opened it and it was a check for $1,500. And God has met every need that we have come up with for this family above and beyond what we could ever imagine. And today we're moving them into their new home. When we got here this morning, the trailer was pretty much empty. Last night we put in the washer and dryer, but it was empty. Today we've had probably 30 or 40 people come and set up beds, make beds, set up the bathrooms, clean, line the cabinets, bring groceries. Um, this house is going to be completely ready for this family when they come at 4 o'clock. The walls are decorated. It's, it's amazing what has happened today. That's an amazing example of someone who saw a need and went and met that need. I talked to Katrina. They didn't have enough money to buy someone a new house. But they felt like that's what God was calling them to do. And as they begin to walk that way, other people begin to see the vision and begin to give towards that. I think there was like five or six different connect groups in our church that helped with that. Different teachers from her school all got involved. Because one person saw a need and was willing to put someone else's need above their own. That's what it's like to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Now I want to make a note though that not everyone chooses to make Jesus as their king. Not everyone's a disciple of God. Not everyone's a follower. Point C on your outline states that the Pharisees denied Jesus as the king, as their king. It says this, when he came near to the place where the road goes to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of Disciples began joyful, joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep, cry, quit, quiet, uh, they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And here's a note. The crowds were quoting Psalms 118. It says, Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless, it, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And here's a life application for us. We need to praise Jesus as our king, even if others tell us to be quiet. How many of you realize that we're living in a society and in a world that is becoming more and more um, agitated with the name of Jesus? There are people who not only do they not want... Uh, to Jesus to be their king, they don't want Jesus to be your king. We have 
brothers and sisters all around the world, all around the world, who are boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, and it's costing them their life. Costing them their life. But you know what? (laughs) They're going to praise Jesus, and they're not going to be quiet. They're not. Listen to what uh, happened to uh, Peter and to John when they had been persecuted for speaking out the name of Jesus. So they called the apostles back in and they commanded them never to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think that God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen or heard. Followers of Jesus are not ashamed to call him their king. I'll say that again. Followers of Jesus are not ashamed to call Jesus their king and to be associated with him. I'm telling you, we have Christian brothers and sisters that are losing their life all over the world because they're willing to say, I want to be associated with Jesus. Yet many times in my own life, I'm ashamed to speak up and associate with Jesus in my my workplace, in the recreations that I do. Not real sure if I want people to know if I'm a Christian or not. Believers who follow Jesus boldly proclaim Jesus as their king. Listen to what Psalms 34, 1 and 3 says. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. We need... Every opportunity we get to come in here together and gather together, we need to proclaim that Jesus is our king as boldly and as loudly as we can. We need to proclaim that he's our king because we're followers of him. Now, point two on your outline states that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the people there didn't recognize him as king or understand his kingdom. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's riding on that donkey and people are praising him. They're putting uh, palm branches down and they're declaring him to be their king. When he comes close to Jerusalem, all of a sudden he stops and this is what happens. But as he comes closer to Jerusalem, he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. Oh, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Jesus comes into Jerusalem and all of a sudden he begins to weep and he begins to cry because they didn't understand that Jesus was a king that was coming to set up a kingdom. But it was a king and a kingdom that the people of Israel were rejecting because it was, didn't meet their expectations. And here's a note. It still breaks Jesus' heart when people reject him. Ezekiel 33 says this, As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they can live. Turn. Turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? And here's a life application for us this morning. Our hearts need to break for people who do not know Jesus as their king. 
We have friends and relatives and acquaintances and neighbors who don't know Jesus. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do our hearts break for the fact that they don't know Jesus? Do our hearts break for the fact that they're on a a road that's actually leading them to death and destruction and a life and eternity and hell? Do our hearts break for that? Because I will tell you something, Jesus' heart is breaking for that. And our hearts need to break for the same things that Jesus' heart breaks for. This is... Apostle Paul, his heart broke the same way in Romans. He says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, that they should be saved. Paul was willing to say, listen, I'll lose my life so that they could find life. Are we willing to allow our hearts to break? For those who don't know Jesus as their Lord. Are we willing our hearts to break? Are we willing to do something about our hearts breaking? Chris mentioned even before this. Easter is the time that more people will come to church than any other time. It's an open invitation for you to do something about people who don't know about Jesus. Christ's followers are on a mission to tell others about him as their king. Well, Ash started off this message today asking you a question. How many of you want to know what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of his? Well, this is what it looks like. It looks like people who have surrendered their life to the rule and reign of God in their hearts. They're willing to go when God says go, trust him for the circumstances. They understand and believe that everything they own belongs to God, and they're willing to use their resources to further his kingdom. They're people who look at other people's needs ahead of their own. They're servant leaders. They're those that are not ashamed to be associated with Jesus, who boldly proclaim them as his king and whose hearts break for those who don't know him and are on a mission to rectify that. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of his. Will you pray with me? Father, I just want to come before you. And Father, I just want want to say right now, Lord, I want to be one of your disciples. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ as my king. I want to live in his kingdom. I want the kingdom of God to expand in my heart. I want the kingdom of God to expand in people who don't know you as they open up their hearts to you. I want your kingdom to expand in their hearts. Lord, teach me how to live this out. Lord, teach me what it means to follow you. To follow your example in every way. Lord, I willingly submit my life to you. I willingly submit my time, my relationships, my finances and my career, my plans 
I willingly submit them to you. Lord, you laid down everything so that I could have a relationship and be in right standing with God. And the only proper response is for me to lay everything back at your feet. Lord, help us to be good stewards with what you've given us. Good stewards of our finances, good stewards of our relationships, our time. For just a moment, in your own way and on your own words, pray and ask God to help you be a better follower of Jesus as your king. Now, Father, I pray that you would help us walk out the commitments that we make today. I pray that, Lord God, that you give us opportunities to demonstrate you as our king and demonstrate you that we live in your kingdom. Lord, I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.